brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, just trying to stay sane in this mad world from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we've talked to many guests about how the leading theories and scientific paradigms are so rooted in this materialism model that they just can't be accurate, because we know there are realms, fields, and forces beyond just what we can see. Consciousness is not just an illusion of the brain, ether is not just a fun word, and magic is very much real. Well, when it comes to exciting, internally consistent models that incorporate such things, there are many bright minds circling around similar ideas, but one that's been intriguing to me is the hollow, fractographic, unified field theory of Nassim Haramein and the wide-reaching work of the Resonance Science Foundation. You might remember a provocative show we did with Nassim not long ago, but you should also be aware that during these quarantine times, they've made Nassim's unified science course at the Resonance Academy completely free of charge. Just go to ResonanceScience.org to sign up. And as any good model should, the hollow fractal paradigm elegantly blends science and spirituality, the principle of as above, so below, and reframes many aspects of what we think we know in a much more holistic context. Given the current state of the world, I figured it might be a good time to bring on the Resonance Science Foundation's main molecular biologist, William Brown. William has worked in numerous laboratories across the country and has an extensive background in genetic and neurobiological research and theory. He has a Bachelor's of Science degree in Cellular and Molecular Biology from Northern Arizona University and a Master of Science degree in Applied Recumbent DNA Technology from New York University. Not only does he have some intriguing things to say about the fingerprints of genetic manipulation in our alien-human hybrid DNA, but he also does some exciting work in applying hollow fractographic principles to biological systems, which is just the sort of thing I thought we could use. So let's get into it. Solving the hard problems left by an incomplete scientific paradigm, the alien DNA decoder himself, William Quantum Biology Brown. Welcome to the higher side. Hi, thank you, Greg. It's great to be on with you. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this. I have found a lot of your work really interesting. And as I kind of mentioned there in the intro, when you have a dominant scientific model that's inaccurate, 
many of the ideas and theories that come out of it are going to be incorrect too. And we have a world worried about viruses and catching this COVID-19 thing. And at a minimum, we have to rethink the petrochemical model to solving disease. And maybe it goes even deeper than that. But to get the ball rolling here, when I have a guest who's gone through years of study in the conventional system, I'm also curious where it is they realized something was off. What can you say about your aha moment? When did you realize mainstream biology was leaving a lot of important stuff off the table? Yeah, it really was when the more materialistic theories, mechanistic theories behind biology were being presented. So early on in my undergraduate career, you know, I'm beginning to get into molecular biology, biochemistry, learning how the various enzymes and nanomachines of the body work. And the predominant model being presented at that time was such that, you know, you've got enzymes that catalyze reactions and you've got substrates that are what they act on to produce you know, products, and that's what drives the metabolism of the cell of your body and everything from, you know, DNA replication and mitosis to make new cells and all of that. But, you know, that was based on what's called like the lock and key mechanism. And it's this idea that these are like billiard balls on a table and they're being struck randomly and they're just kind of randomly bouncing around. And every now and then, you get the right substrate that hits the right enzyme, and when that happens, the reaction takes place. But that's completely random. There's no orchestration to that or coordination to that at all. And also, the recognition of that enzyme by the substrate, it just happens that the substrate hits at just the right angle and just the right part. So it's like a lock and a key, and it fits. But again, that's a random orientation because you know there's only one of a few orientations that that lock and key is going to fit together so you know that was extremely problematic for me because if you take for instance like dna replication the dna polymerase enzyme that makes the new strand of dna from the template strain it synthesizes a thousand nucleotides a second with an error rate of like 0.01% or smaller. So it can put together a thousand nucleotides and there's four different nucleotides in one second. How is that occurring via random collision? Because even if you had where these nucleotides are randomly colliding with the polymerase enzyme, it has to be the right nucleotide of those one of four it has to be in the exact right orientation for that lock and key mechanism to work. And that just, if you were to do the mathematics and, you know, the probabilities, the statistics, all of that, it doesn't add up at all. It's impossible that that's happening via the paradigm that was being presented at that time. Now, the problem with that paradigm is that it's based on physics. Newtonian physics is basically a 400-year-old model mm -hmm. <laughs> of physics. You know, it's a little bit dated. Mm -hmm. 
it's not even caught up yet to 19th century physics with like Maxwell and electromagnetics and then 20th century physics with electrodynamics and quantum mechanics. That just doesn't even enter into the equation at all. You know, it's a purely deterministic kind of Newtonian clockwork type model. It doesn't explain the biodynamics at all. You know, that was kind of the first chip in the armor. But then later on, when I was doing research and investigations into genetics and neurobiology and neurogenetics, you know, the state of affairs with explaining how DNA produces an organism, you know, going from genotype to phenotype, that was completely unknown, how that's occurring. And it's still largely unknown how that occurs. And then consciousness is probably the biggest one because there is no materialistic, mechanistic model that can explain the phenomenon of consciousness. And certainly the predominant paradigm today, the neurocomputational model, doesn't come anywhere close to explaining the hard problem of consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great breakdown of some of the major flaws in our current paradigm. And of course, I'm no expert, but I do try to tell people, like, if you look at the history of medicine, it's really not that old. And they were doing some pretty dark and twisted stuff in the early stages of medicine and treating things that probably could have used a scalpel with a giant sledgehammer and just all kinds of mechanical kinds of ways of dealing with the body, leaving out consciousness, leaving out the holistic system. It's just bad philosophy applied to the body. And we know now there's just so many things about the body that do not jive with this conventional paradigm. But in a time of panic, like we've been in, people divert to the experts or who they perceive as the experts. And we end up with this draconian clampdown system based off really faulty understanding of the body and health and wellness. So it is pretty wild and pretty pertinent to these times. And I guess I would ask, of the alternatives available, clearly you found Nassim's theory to be the best framework to work with. Can you talk to us about what you saw in it, particularly in your areas of expertise that got you on board and working with the Resonance Science Foundation as opposed to some other alternative? Yeah, so by the time I was doing my PhD research, which I actually didn't complete a PhD, I did about two years before actually I joined Nassim because I saw there was better opportunity working with him and his theory to accomplish what I was thinking to do, you know, synthesize a more coherent understanding of the physics of the biological system. But even the PhD students that I was working with, if you try to discuss mechanisms of electromagnetism operating in the body, they had completely no idea what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember getting into a discussion on whether or not there were photons in the brain, whether or not there was electromagnetic phenomenon occurring in the brain. One of the PhDs students said, 
you know, I said, yeah, of course, there's electromagnetism in the brain. And he said, oh, but are there photons? And I had to explain that electromagnetism is photons. You know, that's the quantization of the electromagnetic field is called a photon. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's just that the problem was and still is that to get a, you know, advanced degree in biology where you're going to practice medicine or study the biological system, you, know, you only need one or two years of physics, and that rarely gets you into Maxwell's electromagnetism. And so, if you start talking about quantum biology, you know, it just flies completely by the wayside. You know, it's just completely off the radar, and just, there's no, especially back then, there's just no context for it. You know, it sounds like you're just talking crazy. And then, you know, on the physics side, uh, physicists, in terms of understanding quantum biology, they don't have a thorough enough understanding of the intricacies of the nanomolecular scale biological system, you know, at the, the micro scale, to understand how quantum physics, quantum mechanical phenomena can be taking place there, electrodynamics, electromagnetism. So, when I was able to team up with Nassim, you know, his holofractographic model of unified physics fit perfectly into beginning to explain these hard problems, these big questions that don't have an explanation in biology coming from the foundational side of things, which is physics. You know, so consciousness, you know, when you begin to integrate in holographic principles, the holographic brain, and the holographic structure of subspace, of space-time, it's kind of very natural and easy explanation flows from that of how you get consciousness. And you can begin to describe, actually, the nature of consciousness in the universe, the role it plays in the mechanisms and dynamics of the universe. But then, so, that theoretical fundamental level, that's a wealth of understanding. But, of course, that theoretical side satisfies the curiosity, but what about the applications? You know, and, you know, that's where it becomes relevant to folks who maybe don't even have that curiosity, mm-hmm. you know, because it can better inform, you know, taking that holofractographic unified physics approach can inform your ideas of health and wellness of the body, you know, therapeutic approaches, which is especially, you know, more relevant now than ever, given the certain circumstances, the global situation we're in. So sure enough, you know, we're working on novel approaches to health and wellness, to, you know, combating disease, you know, both ways to neutralize pathogens, which don't follow the, you know, consensus model, the conventional paradigm of using drugs, synthesized chemicals and stuff like that, which has its place and is effective in acute circumstances and in certain situations, but taking a more, you could call holistic approach, but an approach that's going more to the foundational level, 
you know, things are operating via information exchange of the quantum fields, electromagnetic information exchange, phonon exchange. And so if you can modulate these things at that level, you can make significant changes with minimal side effects. Hmm. And so, you know, that's certainly the approach we're taking. So to both externally combat, say, pathogens, but also internally boost the health and wellness of the biological system. And, you know, that has a spiritual or consciousness component, too, because, you know, your state of mind, how are you connected in this connected universe? You know, and then, of course, the connectivity of your system as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And let's drill down into that a little bit more. Maybe let's talk about viruses mm-hmm. and drill down into what makes us sick, because we have this overarching scientific model of a cold, random, harsh universe. And that attitude certainly informs our views on health and wellness, too, along with all the special interests that want to corral our thinking. Mm-hmm. But We use militaristic language and approach the natural world as this thing that we're doing battle with, and it's trying to kill us. We're at war with the germs and all that. (laughs) But I've had several guests that have explained how to cure dozens of autoimmune conditions or even cancer, largely with diet or fixing our mineral deficiencies, which shows right there that we aren't just victims of what we randomly, quote unquote, catch, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also have people saying that just as we learned not all bacteria is bad, in fact, a lot of it isn't, viruses might also be more nuanced than the way the mainstream has presented them to us. Maybe not the source of disease at all. I'm not sure. But what are your thoughts? How do some of these ideas need to be reframed with a hollow fractographic or quantum biological model? Yeah, those are great points that you bring up. And first, on the role of viruses, that's exactly right. You know, the conventional idea, you know, these are, they're not organisms, these are pathogenic nanomachines, uh, purely, is erroneous. That's not entirely correct at all. You know, so actually, you know, you might have heard of the microbiome, which describes the flora Yes. Uh, the microorganisms naturally present in the body and that actually they outnumber your own cells by about a hundred to one. So you have a hundred times more microorganisms as bacteria in your body, in your system than you do your own cells. And that's your microbiome. Now, you know, obviously that's come along and we understand fully that, you know, okay, these so-called germs, these microorganisms, aren't bad. You know, in fact, if you don't have a healthy microflora, you're very unhealthy. It is essential to the health and well-being of your biological system. It performs just myriad functions in addition to actually protecting you from microorganisms that are opportunistic pathogens that, that will disrupt the health and wellness of your body if they're able to take hold in a significant fashion. But you also have the virome. Now, it outnumbers, so the number of viruses, or 
they outnumber your sales a thousand to one. Mm. <laughs> so you have a thousand times more viruses in your body than you do cells. And obviously, these are not bad because that virome, just like the microbiome, is part of the natural functioning of your body, maintaining health and wellness. And indeed, a great portion of these viruses found in the intestinal system are regulating the microbiome. They're weeding out potentially pathogenic or disease-causing microorganisms. And in fact, you could isolate those viruses from the intestinal tract and use it to treat microbial infections. These are particularly called bacteriophages, and they are orders of magnitude more safe than antibiotics, which are chemical treatments. This is a non-chemical approach to antibiotics, and they're 100% selective. So one of the problems with traditional antibiotics is that they take out all of your microflora, right? Every microorganism. The viruses only target one or maybe two bacteria and the bad ones. So you can target them and leave your cells completely untouched and your healthy microflora completely untouched. Hmm. Now, that's not even getting into yet the human endogenous retroviruses, which are in the genome, the human genome. And that will come up later if we get into the alien genetics. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for that. And I'm curious if this is, maybe it's different terminology, but it seems pretty congruent with the exosome theory, which is being tossed around a lot now, which is the idea that when someone gets into a state of illness, and then we take a blood sample, look under the microscope, we see these things, we call them viruses, and we're saying, that's what's causing the illness, because this is a thing that I didn't see in the healthy person. But the exosome theory is saying that actually these viruses or these things we're seeing, they emerge from your cell. They're they're something that your cell produces to try to detoxify itself. They're excretions of a toxic cell. And I mean, you're saying endogenous. This seems very much in line. These are things that are part of our makeup that emerge from inside of us, not something we've caught from the outside world randomly. Well... There is some truth to that, but for supporters of the exosomes, they're, they're not going to like what I have to say, just because, you know, that's just not actually what's occurring. Because you can isolate those virus particles, and you can do an analysis, an autopsy, if you will, on what they're made of. You know, you can look at the protein capsule that forms the body, you can go inside and look at the molecules, the specific, you know, nano machines that it's using to operate. You can look at its DNA or RNA genome, and it's clearly not something that's coming from our own cells, because most of these components are completely foreign to what's naturally present in the body. 
there are components that you don't have in the body that they're coming from outside into the body. You know, you can very clearly show that. So the promoters of the exosome theory definitely aren't going to like <laughs> what I have to say about that, you know, because particularly the idea that, like, okay, so if, say, you're being exposed to 5G, it creates a toxic buildup in the cell, and the cell tries to detoxify itself via exosomes. The only thing is that you can look at exosomes or the budding of vesicle compartments from the membrane of the cell, which happens all the time. I mean, neurotransmission is a process of exosome, you know, uh, the releasing of a lipid vesicle from the synapse of the neuron into the intracellular space. And I mean, you know, you can just really easily see that these extracellular vesicles are completely different from a virus. Fair, fair. And maybe that's a little too in the weeds, perhaps. It just it prompted that from me because you said endogenous viruses and yeah, then we do yeah. have this virome and some aren't so bad. So, and obviously we're talking about a category, viruses, that we know there are just thousands of things within. So I'm sure there's a lot of nuance in, and maybe we can't even categorize all viruses as one thing, but I guess there's just some that aren't so bad for us and are kind of housed in our body. And that's where I was saying that there is some truth to that. Because, you know, you do have those endogenous retroviruses. And so the model that I've promoted, it's actually a theory that I developed when I first started learning about viruses you know, at the university, is that you do have beneficial or altruistic viruses. And so you can have this kind of intrinsic or internal activation of viruses, you know, and it would look just like the exosome budding from the cell and transmitting information via a packaged DNA to adjacent cells. And I think that that is occurring. And actually, that's a beneficial process. The reason why it's not known is that the only reason we even know viruses are around is when they cause a problem. You know, it's when you have one that is disrupting the health and wellness of the system. That's when you know, okay, something's going on, there's something there, and you can see it and identify it. But if it's something that's a normal part of the functioning of the body, and it's actually not causing harm, but it's helping the body, it might go completely unnoticed, especially given the extremely small size of viruses, you know, they're in the nanometer scale range. And so that's actually a model I developed to explain the origin of viruses, where they come from. And they actually, in the deep past, in the early history of life, they emerged as a gene-sharing mechanism uh, for horizontal gene transfer so organisms could act altruistically, collaboratively, so if they had a new mutation, a new piece of gene information that was beneficial and helpful, they could package it up and pass it along to a neighbor. And I 
think that that is happening. You know, that, that was my hypothesis very early on. And actually, an instance of that has been discovered where these so-called viruses are actually being used to share useful DNA information with a colony of microorganisms. So it, it is nuanced. It is nuanced. <laughs> Isn't it all? And yeah. <laughs> so a major interest of mine right now is how the electromagnetic fields of the body and the earth and the environment play a role in our health and wellness. Some say it's the most fundamental aspect. And it wasn't until we started stringing electrical wires across every city and sending radio waves across the globe that we started seeing people get the flu in mass. That's an argument I've heard that is kind of compelling. I just think it's interesting because even in the coronavirus news, we don't really hear anything about diet or upping our immune system. And then to go a level deeper, we never really hear about the health of our electromagnetic fields and how to take care of that. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the relationship between these unseen fields and the state of our general health? How related are they? Gosh, yeah. And, you know, just touching on that, a point that you brought up, you know, it is kind of amazing to me that you could go into a hospital and be sick and get hooked up to, like, let's say, those stick a ventilator <laughs> into your lungs, which is right. extremely invasive and damaging procedure. But why not give the supplements that the body needs, the micronutrients that the body needs to have a healthy functioning immune system? I think that in a lot of those cases, just giving zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, you know, boosting those levels, DHA, DHEA, you could probably pretty much eliminate the need for any serious medical intervention and give the body the resources it needs to heal itself naturally. But then we do have a new situation for the human experience, which is the widespread and intensifying generation of artificially generated electromagnetic fields. And starting with the 50 to 60 hertz electrical power lines that went up in the, the early 20th century. And there's certainly no doubt, you know, the studies, the experiments have been performed to show that these external sources of electromagnetic radiation, which aren't naturally present, do absolutely interact with the functioning of the body and can disrupt it oftentimes in a negative way. Now, there is really interesting analysis that has been performed showing the correlation between the emergence of these external sources of electromagnetic radiation and epidemics, pandemics, etc. You know, even with the current pandemic, if you see a heat map, you know, showing the concentration, the density of infections, it overlaps nearly exactly with locations where the 5G technology is being set up and implemented. Hmm. You always have to be careful, though, with correlations, because despite the kind of layman's interpretation, 
of a correlation. A correlation does not mean causation. Right. So you can see, okay, you've got increased instances of infection in locations where 5G is being initiated. So it's correlated. But there's other things that are correlated, like 5G is rolled out in the most densely populated areas, cities, and cities where you have the highest infection rate because it's the most densely populated area. So, you know, even though it's correlated, it's not, it doesn't necessarily say that there's causation there. Now, from my research into the effects of artificially sourced electromagnetic radiation, you know, it certainly is going to lower the immune function of the body, making it more susceptible to infections, disease, because the body has increased stress levels from the electromagnetic load that, you know, isn't naturally present and really hasn't been present for the 100 plus thousand years of human history. <laughs> you know, it's just an extremely instant change in what our body has to deal with. But then some of the proponents of the exosome theory has gone on to kind of take that a, a step too far and say, well, these pandemics are the result, the direct result of these external sources of electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the problem with that is that human populations also have a long and deep history of epidemics going back as far as we have archaeological evidence of. You know, you can dig up 3,000-year-old mass graves uh, in locations in, say, Western Europe and isolate bubonic plague. So these pathogens infecting human populations, causing epidemics, even pandemics, is a naturally occurring thing. It's been with us always. It'd be very difficult to correlate the 1348 Black Death of Europe, which killed 25% of the population, with the rollout of 5G. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Uh, right. But you know what is interesting about that particular case? And of course, this is all just outside-the-box stuff that I read. Mm -hmm. But there is a a book out there. It's not going to come to me in this moment because I didn't think we would talk about this particular plague. But Uh apparently there's a correlation to an asteroid impact or a meteor impact that kicked up a lot of dust and particulates in the air and possibly a a change in the environment that isn't necessarily through human technology Uh could have caused a, a massive illness because it seems to, again, no no uh, definitive causation, but people who have looked back in history and tried to find possible causes that really weren't being thought about at the time uh, have looked at that and thought that it could have played a role. And I don't know, but it is, uh, it is interesting because we know that a lot of viruses and bacteria come in on comets and asteroids and meteors, from what I understand. And when you have an impact like that in the ground, it can send a bunch of heavy metals up into the air. I don't know. It's obviously beyond me, but I thought that was an interesting possibility. Yeah, that is extremely interesting. Now, you know, it hasn't been 100% confirmed that you can have what amounts to interstellar 
transmission of a virus. So it hasn't been 100% confirmed that, you know, a virus or a microbe, bacteria or microorganism has come from outer space. But there are many scientists, or at least a good number, who, and myself included, strongly believe that this is occurring. You can have a new virus that comes to Earth from outer space. Now, you know, if you look at some of the numbers, on any given day, there's about 100 million viruses raining down per square meter of the Earth's surface. So, you know, you could go out, find a place unobstructed with the sky, set up a collection pan in a square meter, and in one second get 100 million viruses that have rained down from the sky. Uh, <laughs> you know, and this is, you know, a major component of the theory of panspermia. Yes. You know, so, I mean, not only can it explain possibly the emergence of new viruses and especially pandemics that prove to be, you know, exceptionally lethal. But actually, you know, that's the same kind of mechanism by which you could explain the origin of life on Earth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> via the same yes. mechanism. Yeah. Since we have just stumbled onto this and is definitely on the agenda, let's talk about it while we're still in the first hour. Let's get into human DNA. I understand your PhD thesis was on genetic manipulation of evolving humans and the idea that we were engineered in the ancient past, mm. possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard you say that the very same techniques and kind of artifacts of DNA editing that we use today can actually be seen in our genetic code somewhere. Mm. This might relate to what you mentioned a few moments ago about retroviruses possibly leading to an alien hybrid DNA conclusion. But how do you factor this kind of stuff into the human story? And what does the human story look like with this new context? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so just to be completely clear, so my thesis work was actually, at that time, I was just trying to explain via, you know, investigating the genome, how you had a transition from an ape-like ancestor, you know, closely resembling the modern-day chimpanzee, to a human. Because the conventional evolutionary theory is that we share a common ancestor with the chimpanzee. And so if you go back eight, nine million years ago, we actually came from the same population of apes. But, you know, these populations split on one of them, you know, went on to become humans and the other one went on to become modern day chimpanzees and bonobos. And you can see this particularly if you do an analysis of the genome. So a comparative analysis of the genomes between humans and chimpanzees, because they have about a 98.9% similarity. And that varies. It can be, you know, give or take, it can be higher or lower percent similarity, you know, by maybe 0.5 to 1%. The thing is, is the number of potential variability between a human genome and a chimpanzee genome is no greater than the number of variability between one human individual and another. 
So actually, me and you could have the same amount of genetic diversity as I have with a given chimpanzee. <laughs> you know, and what that means in plain English is that our genes are nearly identical with the chimpanzees. Now, that's a little bit problematic given the conventional paradigm because genes are what are supposed to make you a unique species. You know, it's supposed to be changes in the genes that lead you to become different from another population that hasn't had the changes in the genes that you've had. And that's the process of uh, speciation. So my thesis was, well, okay, if the genes are identical, how do we account for the differences? And, you know, this is a pretty big bite to chew off because, uh, you know, part of that requires explaining how genes produce an organism, how you go from a genotype to a phenotype, which I have worked out to a large extent with, you know, explanations that you won't find in any biology lecture or textbook. Uh, now. It was in the course of doing this research that I was like, okay, so it's not the gene coding regions. Well, that's not that big a problem because the gene coding regions only account for 1% of the genome. So 99% of the genome are not canonical or conventional gene coding segments of DNA. 99% is something else. Now, that does have the historical misnomer of the junk DNA, which today no molecular biologist or geneticist refers to it as junk DNA because it's known that it's anything but junk DNA. It's extremely functional, which should have been obvious from the start. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, so what is that other 99%? Well, that is where a lot of the interesting stuff is located. In particular, you do a breakdown of it because, you know, we have whole genome sequences. We've got the thousand human genome consortium sequence, you know, taken from populations representing every major ethnographic group of humanity on the planet. If you do an analysis of that, it's about 50% retroviral DNA. Uh, 50% of our genome which is about 1.5 billion nucleotides, give or take, is of external source. It's retroviral DNA that was inserted into the genome. Now, immediately, this is a interesting point for me because I had done my master's in applied recombinant DNA technology. And what that is, is that you use retroviruses to insert DNA into an organism to change its gene expression. Mm. You know, uh, so even the gene therapy for humans, the early practice of gene therapy use what's called a retroviral vector, where you use a retrovirus to insert a gene into the human genome. So you're going to explain why humans are different from 
our closest genetic relatives, chimpanzees, and the answer is retroviral DNA insertion. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. It absolutely <laughs> is. And does this retrovirus DNA insertion happen naturally? It seems like it could or does, but is there something different about the, the retrovirus DNA insertion you're seeing in uh, the human code? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, the idea is that it does happen naturally because, you know, every, well, not every, but most geneticists know that there are human endogenous retroviruses. And I've got many of those know that it makes up 50% of the genome, but there's very few, if any of them, you know, talking about, you know, genetic engineering in respect to that. And because, you know, it's just, What's given his explanation is that, well, this is occurring naturally. But there are some major problems with that occurring naturally. First and foremost is that there's been no documented case of retroviral infection being inserted into the gametes, the reproductive cells, and passed on to the progeny. So we don't see that happening naturally. We haven't seen that happen naturally. Immediately, you know, that's the foundation that the naturalistic explanation rests on. And so maybe that does happen from time to time. But there are problems with that as a naturalistic explanation because what happens when a retrovirus targets a particular cell? You know, so you could take the most well-known retrovirus the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, which targets white blood cells. So it binds to white blood cells, inserts its genome into your genome, inserts its DNA into your DNA, and it takes up resonance in there. And what happens to those white blood cells? They die. <laughs> That's why you become immunodeficient, is because the virus wipes out all those cells. Well, if you have a retrovirus targeting the gametes, the reproductive cells, what's going to happen to those? If the virus is spreading through them at a sufficient rate to insert the DNA into all the billions and billions of gametes that it needs to, you know, to maintain its replication, those cells are going to die. Hmm. If an organism has a retrovirus taking out its gametes, it is sterile. It's not going to pass on its DNA. Interesting. So there's a little bit of a problem with the naturalistic explanation for how you get 1.5 billion nucleotides of RNA virus into your genome that's passed down, you know, via inheritance. So in layman's terms, what would that mean? If we're looking specifically at the reproductive organs and what mm -hmm. you're seeing in them, and we're putting this in the context of we were potentially engineered. Obviously, we're able to mate today. Is that mm -hmm. something that was engineered in us? Were we initially not able to do that? Is that? Am I hearing this right? Well, you know, it's just that that normal explanation probably is not accounting for, you know, the vast majority of where these retroviral sequences are coming from. 
So you do have other mechanisms like horizontal gene transfer. And this is very important. And actually, it's what I was alluding to earlier on, on the origin of viruses. The large portion of what a virus is doing is it's exchanging DNA from neighbor to neighbor, organism to organism, what's called horizontally. And that just refers to it's not DNA that's being passed on via reproduction, via inheritance, as jumping from one cell into another, one body into another in a single lifetime. And, you know, it can spread through an entire population that way and, you know, be inserted into the genome without causing problems with reproduction. So this horizontal gene transfer mechanism is one way, and it's kind of, it's a natural type way that you can have retroviral genes spread through a population. Now, this begins to get into some of the ideas of how these retroviral elements could be associated with actual directed engineering mm-hmm. by an advanced extraterrestrial intelligence civilization. Because one thing that could potentially happen is that the same way that you could write a code to act as a virus into the software of a computer and change its function, you know, obviously that's usually done for nefarious purposes, but the same way you could do that, you know, write a code, send it out, have a virus inserted into a large number of computers, you know, a advanced enough extraterrestrial civilization could see, oh, there's, you know, intelligent life over uh, on this planet Earth, package up a program, DNA program, into a virus, a retrovirus, and just send it out through space. And, you know, it comes raining down. And once it reaches the Earth's surface, via this horizontal gene transfer, goes into the human population inserts these novel genes in there and directs the evolutionary progression of that species. Damn, yeah. And then they just send some crafts out every once in a while to check how it's progressing, to check Uh on the old uh, alien ant farm here. Uh It's awesome, man, because this is very much in line with my thinking because I'm a big fan of the genetic manipulation by aliens theory. But Mm -hmm. as I've gotten deeper into it, I've heard from others who look at it and say, yeah, there might be something to it. But it's another materialism mistake to think that physical beings came here and built us in a Frankenstein sort of way. And it's a lot more likely that they sent out packets of viruses or bacteria Mm -hmm. out into the universe that could unpack themselves on maybe any habitable planet. Or Mm -hmm. obviously, Mm -hmm. obviously you could direct it here if you knew there was life and it could just kind of integrate and merge with what's already here. And I like that idea, too, because it is a lot easier to send out some sort of terraforming space drones than it is to physically get to a new place. Imagine Mm. setting up shop physically on a new planet when all you really had to do was send your virus code there instead. It's a lot more 
nuance. It's, it's something that a more intelligent species would do rather than having to physically be there to set it all up and also accommodate themselves and get their own resources for living and, inter, you know, living and setting up a society. It takes a lot more work to do that. But this seems very much in line with your thinking, and uh, I find it exciting. Yeah, well, and, you know, there's some interesting line of thoughts along that kind of model, if you will, in that if you look at, you know, some of the projections for, so, you know, this is going to be a, you know, high-level perspective, big-picture kind of thing. If you take some of the ideas of where the universe is going, Ultimately, you know, the evolution of the universe, the main idea is that, well, it ends in a heat death, entropic heat death. Now, if you're an advanced civilization, you might understand that, okay, so entropy is increasing and eventually it'll be all entropy and the universe will suffer the heat death. Well, one way to reverse the increase in entropy is to increase the intelligence of the system. So if you can increase intelligence and consciousness in the universe, you can stop that progression of the entropic increase, even reverse it. And so what might be a motivation of a advanced intelligent civilization to send out these viral packets into the galaxy that are programmed to make intelligent species really intelligent species. <laughs> well, it's to increase the overall intelligence and consciousness of the universe itself. You know, so you drive, you help to drive the universe into a state of greater coherence greater systems coherence and actually lower the entropic value. And I mean, it can actually go so far as, you know, if the intelligence and consciousness of the universe increases to such an extent via accelerating the intelligent evolution of species on other planets, if it gets to such a point, you can actually make new universes that are optimally biophilic so the big picture perspective on this can actually get into some interesting ideas and mechanisms yes it can <laughs> i like it man this is kind of we're already at the furthest edge of how i've been able to process the <laughs> alien human hybrid dna thing but at one point i was very much into michael tellinger's work and mm -hmm. the idea that we were genetically tweaked to be a slave species and that jives a lot with my thoughts about just conspiratorial machinations and the way people seem to process them or just be oblivious to them and just follow any damn order that comes across that tv screen we seem pre-programmed to just say okay what, whatever you need me to do boss mm -hmm. and uh you know there's the whole nurture versus nature argument and it might be just baked right in but even if you wanted to engineer a slave species again you could send out this packet of viruses in advance and then just show up when everybody's ready to pick up their shovels and take orders yeah and you know in regards to michael tundra and he's a really good friend of mine i got to spend time with him down at adam's calendar 
uh, presented at one of his conferences. Just you know, fantastic time with him. But if anything, you probably have more than one advanced extraterrestrial intelligence population group out there. So, if anything, probably the directed evolution of the human populations on Earth had probably been underway for a good couple hundred thousands of years, and then you could have a more controlling or even nefarious type intelligent group civilization that comes in and does some tweaking to make one of the populations like a slave species. If anything, that's probably closest to what matches with that line of thinking in Zachariah Sitchin's work. It begins to get more convoluted because you undoubtedly have multiple different groups, different civilizations that are involved in this interaction. Yeah, I think that's pretty fascinating. It's a giant alien DNA human engineering soup out there. And uh-huh, uh-huh. Maybe it's happened many times. I mean, the human story is quite long. And before we run out of time, I wanted to bring it back to the coronavirus thing a little bit more. I don't want to lean too hard on coronavirus-centric coverage because I do think people are getting fatigued by it. And if we talk about health and wellness in general, it makes for an interview that still has a lot of value even when this thing passes. But you did tell me you're approaching this COVID-19 thing way differently than the mainstream's quest for a vaccine or the use of harsh drugs with pretty scary side effects. You mentioned the risk of blindness in the case of hydroxychloroquine. Well, what have you been seeing with light and frequency-based approaches to this specific situation? Because you did describe some details that were pretty interesting and seems like this might be a, a better way to go about it. Yeah, so very early on, we were investigating an approach using energy therapeutics, you know, using an energetic approach to neutralize and destroy the virus. The idea being that we could design an electromagnetic system that would specifically target the virus and would have minimal to no side effects on the human host or the humans in the environment. We just saw this as a potentially much more effective and safer means than the more traditional approaches. Certainly more helpful than quarantining uh, an entire population. You know, something could be designed to avoid that problem because, you know, that isn't going to be solved with a vaccine. That has been and continues to be touted as the solution to the quarantine, that people are going to be allowed to come out of their homes once we have a vaccine. But, you know, there's definitely an agenda going on with that because for one thing how good is the vaccine against the common cold uh (laughs) not very good considering that there isn't one right right. (laughs) because because you can't make a vaccine for the common cold the vaccine for influenza is like 20 percent effective 
And it also happens to increase the likelihood of getting other respiratory viral infections like coronavirus. Yes. So vaccine is not going to, to, <laughs> to solve this problem. You know, assuming that there's even some question about, well, how big a problem is it in reality? You know, right. I mean, do you, do you really actually need anything at all? You know, early on, the accounts we were seeing made it look like it you know, was very serious. But I think that a lot of that was overblown and actually a result of having not fully understood the virus. But one of the things that you can do is what's called a structural resonance energy transfer, SRET. And this is a pretty well-known phenomenon, pretty well-known mechanism. Actually, it's how microwaves work. You heat up your food. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the microwaves in your kitchen are making a wavelength that is at a specific size that interacts specifically with water molecule. And basically, that microwave photon is converted directly into a phonon. That's a physical, mechanical oscillation, like a sound wave. It's an acoustic oscillation. So basically, you're converting the light into sound, but that vibratory motion, mechanical oscillation of the molecule is also what we call heat. You know, heat is molecules vibrating very quickly. And so, you know, when you directly transfer a photon into a phonon, that transfer results in heat. And so you can heat up your food. Well, you can adjust that wavelength. So in the microwave, it's tuned to resonate, have a structural resonance energy transfer with a water molecule. You can change that wavelength so that it would be a bigger wavelength so that it doesn't affect water at all. There's no structural resonance transmission. And that's good because if there was, it'd be extremely harmful to the human body, right? 70% water, give or take. But you make that wavelength a little bit larger and actually at just the right size so that it has structural resonance energy transfer with something the size of a virus. It's about 20 to 200 nanometers. So there is actually kind of a range. So, you know, there's just millions and millions of different kinds of viruses of different kinds of sizes. But, you know, each specific virus, every virion has an exact dimensionality to it. You know, so every coronavirus of the COVID-19 class has an exact dimension, just, you know, a diameter, let's say. So you just scale your microwave so that it matches that dimension, that diameter. So the wavelength is comparable to that diameter. You have a structural resonance energy transfer to the varion, only to the varion, heats it up, and you have what's called photothermolysis. The virus quickly denatures it, essentially destructures the capsule, and the membrane bursts open, and the virus is dead. You know, those things are kind of the line between what we consider alive and dead. It's inactivated, right. <laughs> a better term for it. But you could do that 
in terms of the external environment with minimal side effects to a person, especially if you made what's kind of called like a Mazar. That's a microwave laser. So you get a collimated beam that is just like a laser light. If you're standing to the right of that light beam, no light's hitting you. Well, you can do that with this microwave and just kind of go into a room and just completely sterilize it 100%. Or, you know, if no humans are present, just have an omnidirectional emission and just sterilize every single potential surface right. uh, just to totally take it out. But then for inside the body, you can do much a similar thing, but you do start to get into problems with absorption of the microwaves by the extracellular tissue, the, the interstitial fluids of the body, which could have some negative impact on them, but also lower the efficacy of that for directly treating the body. Mm. But you can change, instead of making the wavelength match the resonant frequency of the virus, you could also adjust the timing of the pulses of the electromagnetic wave. So, you know, this is frequency. So you can change the frequency via change of the wavelength, or you can change the frequency by having extremely short pulses. Mm. And actually, like when I say extremely short, they're called uh, femtosecond pulses. You know, so you've got millisecond, microsecond, you know, that's a millionth of a second. And, uh, you know, you get into the femtoseconds, which are billions of times a second. Damn. Yeah, you could set these lasers so that they're having a specific pulse rate of frequency that induces photothermolysis in situ without problems of absorption or having impacts on the body. So these are all things that we're exploring and actually gearing up to develop because, you know, it's not just about this particular pandemic because there's a whole lot of weird stuff going on with this <laughs> pandemic. But, you know, as I had said, you know, natural pandemics do occur. Yeah, people get sick, people get into states of disease, and uh, healing technologies can apply to much more than the current situation. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's something about this is that it's a universal application, unlike a vaccine or a drug. Yes. Uh, because you just adjust the wavelength, you just adjust the pulse rate so that it matches whatever bug that's causing the problem. and. You lice the little Emma. <laughs> <laughs> You're starting to sound a little bit like Royal Raymond Rife, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, he was right. You know, it, it only took about 100 years for him to be vindicated because now what he was doing is pretty much a part of mainstream understanding. Mm. It's like absolutely, you know, using the right frequency, light, even sound, yes. you can destroy a virus, a pathogen, even a cancer. Yeah, it seems like so much of life is based in 
electrical systems and yeah. energy and frequency. And those are the components that aren't really in our medical system. Too bad oh. the Gates Foundation doesn't make money off frequency-based technologies. <laughs> then they might be more inclined to think they work. Oh. Um, but man, this has been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And just before we go, as we're wrapping this up, I wanted to ask you about Taurus Tech. This seems to maybe be the commercial side of the Resonance Science Foundation, or at least they're in alignment where, you know, we see proof of concept devices are being developed based off Nassim's unified physics. What do you find most exciting about what's being developed at Taurus Tech? What do you think people could look forward to actually purchasing or integrating into their own health repertoire, or even energy-based kind of stuff. But what is Taurus Tech working on that you find most exciting? Yeah, yeah. So the Resident Science Foundation is the educational platform. You know, it's where we connect with the community, the scientific community, the, the general population, you know, to share the information, the knowledge, the research that we're working on. And even, you know, we have the Unified Science Academy, which, as you had said, you know, is now free, which has, you know, entire courses teaching holofractographic unified physics. I even have a course, a big questions course, which, you know, extends that unified physics into a synthesis of unified science, you know, uh, incorporating in the application in the biological system and, you know, the understanding of the biological system. But Taurus Tech is where actually the research is being performed and that research is being applied in the development of specific technologies based on that research. So it's really, it's the R&D wing of the RSF, what started as just more of an educational venue. But he's been an inventor since he started. You know, he's been inventing stuff for 30 plus years. For me, undoubtedly, the most exciting thing being worked on this year is anti-gravitational technology. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a biologist, molecular biologist, quantum biologist, whatever. But what gets me probably most excited is anti-gravitational science. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's some extremely interesting stuff. And it's you know what is being worked on and developed here that's the primary focus is to generate a technology that acts on the energetic structure of space and you know this is the energetic structure of space is sometimes also called uh, the quantum vacuum this is quantum vacuum engineering it's also especially historically known as the ether or the luminiferous ether. And actually, there's a, a fantastic lecture by the Nobel Prize winning physicist Fred Wilczek called The Materiality of a Vacuum. And my favorite quote from that is when he says, we are ethereal beings, <laughs> because he was explaining to a room full of physicists that we are made out of ether. We are the ether as is everything. And the ether is what is producing the forces, the physical forces of our world. 
the dynamics of the ether are what produce the strong force, the weak force, electromagnetism, and most importantly, well, for the research we're doing here, gravity. And so, because all four of these forces have a single foundation in the dynamics of the energetic structure of space, the geometry of space, you can use electromagnetism to change the gravitational properties of an object. It's actually called the uh, Kurtenstein-Zeldovic effect, where you can actually generate gravitational waves via passing polarized electromagnetic field through a strong magnetic field at a particular orientation. So already vacuum engineering has been around since the 60s, that, that, that particular effect, where you know you can use electromagnetism and magnetics to change the geometry of space, i.e. modulate the gravitational properties of an object or material. And so that is one of the main thrusts here is to use plasma hydrodynamics, uh, strong electromagnetic fields, magnetism to change the structure or the geometry of space to change the inertial mass of an object and produce what is commonly called anti-gravity, although it's not exactly anti-gravity, it's just gravitational control. You can just change how an object is interacting with the gravitational field and produce what looks like, like levitation, or basically produce thrust. And the same way that you would do that, so you're, you're tapping the energetic structure of space, so you're coupling with it, and you're modulating it, you're changing it. Well, the same technology you would use to do that, you'd also tweak that technology so that when you couple with that energetic structure of space, you could draw energy from it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's free energy technology. Right. So, you know, that's another big thing we're working on here. And actually, you know, the anti-gravitic engine, it doubles as a free energy device. Yes, I've heard that. There's a lot of people who say these two things are just sides of the same coin. <laughs> and it's really the foundational understanding of our environment that is holding people back from having or developing these kind of technologies. When do you think this anti-gravitic craft or electro-gravitic craft is going to be ready for at least a public demonstration? Oh, um, that's always difficult to predict. No more so has that been illustrated than in recent times because we were all quarantined <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, in, right. in our houses for six weeks, you know, so we had to find clever ways to continue to work on it, you know, without getting in trouble or causing trouble, you know, but that definitely put a pretty big impediment on moving forward. But coming from Taurus tech, certainly a demonstration of this kind of technology 
especially in terms of the free energy aspect, is pretty imminent. Like within a year or two, probably by next year, the ability to demonstrate this will be there. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm actually performing experiments right now to measure what I believe are some of the free energy processes occurring with one of the technologies. It's not necessarily accepted, even by all the researchers here, that this is occurring. But actually, my goal, and this is just since we got back out of quarantine, is to actually document and measure and show one of our technologies that is already having this effect where it's coupled with the quantum vacuum and there is an energy transmission because I've observed it in the course of my testing with the technology, you know, just to characterize it. I'm now doing it in a a systematic way, testing specifically for that. So, you know, I, I think it won't be very long before Torstech is having demonstrations, you know, even putting devices out on the market. Yes. I love it. I love it. I'm ready, man. <laughs> yeah. I talk to a lot of people, a lot of researchers and inventors who feel that they're very close to being on the cusp. And mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem like I ever am really seeing those fully out in the open completely verifiable demonstrations of either type of device, but I am a champion in a lot of different corners. I'm waiting. I'm lo- I'm hoping it happens, but we will definitely have to talk again then um, if uh, this comes to fruition. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, because I think that the technology is actually there in a lot of different R&D labs. You know, it's just that it's kind of at that phase right now where it hasn't quite got to the, you know, full application phase yet. You know, this is ready to go. There's still further developments that need to take place to get there. And I think that's kind of actually where the free energy technology community is at at a whole. So some being further along than others. But in my perspective, you know, that's the cusp that, you know, the little pause before you have the big breakthrough and it's out and everywhere. And, uh, you know, and I think that is very imminent. Yes. Well, (laughs) I am hopeful, you know, we need some hope in these challenging (sighs) times. Man, (sighs) this has been really awesome. We got through a bunch of different topics, a lot of technical stuff that's a bit over my head, but the implications are exciting and my mind is thoroughly blown. Is there anything more to leave people with? Maybe tell them about the free course available now or where to find you on social media, all that good stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I have a Facebook, Instagram page, and I'm actually pretty good about engaging in discourse. You know, if there's a question, I often enjoy getting to have those conversations. Um, and then we have the resonance Science Foundation course, which is a unified science academy available online for free. I'm not sure if the URL has been completely converted yet, you know, because it, it used to be a membership program. Now it's free, but it used to be you just type in like the Resonance Science Foundation 
I know if you Google search that, it will still take you to the free online course right. and register there. And then, you know, there's a forum there where, you know, I engage in conversations with folks, you know, answering questions, discussing things from alien DNA engineering to free energy, you know. Uh, so we have a bit of platforms for engagement and learning more about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. I love the stuff you guys are doing over there. And the Hollow Fractal subreddit does a great job of trying to follow you guys. And that's how I kind of keep tabs on the cliff notes of what's going on. But you got a lot of advocates out there. You and Nassim are doing great stuff. So it's a real honor and a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thanks again. And keep pushing back against the conventional paradigm. I wish you luck. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, it's great getting there. For sure. Is anyone here a quantum biologist? (laughs) How about it, guys? William Brown, an important spoke on the resonance science wheel. I've actually had him on my list of guests that I've wanted ever since we had Nassim here. And it was this current situation that really got me to prioritize getting him on. Because I think it's important to keep bringing you guys guests who have different perspectives on viruses, on what makes us sick, and what makes us better. And despite the range of differences some of these guests have had, they all are drastically different from the mainstream perspective as well. They are all saying that a vaccine is not the answer, we have much better solutions, and they're not nearly as risky as Big Pharma's offerings. Yet our guests have had a perspective on viruses that ranges from they're just excretions of a toxic cell, they are exosomes, they're not the cause of illness, which of course is one of the more extreme opinions and one that William doesn't agree with, and Del Bigtree would be another who didn't go that far. But they would still say our thoughts on viruses should be more nuanced than the news is presenting them. They aren't all bad, just like bacteria. We have a virome. We exchange hundreds of viruses when we shake hands. I mean, this isn't exactly saying that a virus doesn't make us sick, but it's definitely a calmer, less hysterical view, right? I mean, William said pandemics do happen, but the difference is that It's not just a roll of the dice and there's nothing you can do. Shore up your immune system, build your defenses, focus on that. It's not like the way it's presented where you just get shot by a stray bullet. And that's really enough for me because if we have a holistic, natural, non-invasive treatment, such as light or frequency-based treatments, the things that were presented today, then it doesn't really matter if you catch the virus or not. We have then other people talking about zinc and intravenous vitamin C. We have the hydroxychloroquine thing, whatever you make of that. But we even have Dr. Rhonda Patrick on the Joe Rogan Experience talking about vitamin D. She's been saying that there's data to suggest the severity of the virus's impact on the body is directly related to the vitamin D levels a person has. And then all of a sudden they're saying on the news, yeah, this virus, it can't seem to survive long in sunlight at all. Better close the outdoors, right? But it's been talked about that this virus affects minorities worse, which could be seen as a red flag for the argument that it was engineered. But 
from Dr. Rhonda Patrick's perspective, it's about melanin in the skin. Darker skinned people need to be out in the sun way more for the sun's rays to penetrate deeper. And in our modern Western culture where nobody's getting enough vitamin D through sunlight, they're getting even less on top of all the other factors that affect minority communities and their immune systems and their diets and even the way they're treated within the medical system. But I thought even that perspective, that vitamin D is a big factor in how bad this is for people, was also worth holding up in my head along with all the others. But the point was just to say that when we have these simpler, more reliable solutions, the paranoia about the virus should go away. Whatever level you're on, I think I got a road that leads to the promised land, you know what I'm saying? It's similar to cancer, where it's actually a lot less scary when you know that there are alternatives to chemo that have been proven over and over. So it doesn't bother me that William isn't into the exosome theory. I want him to be honest, and I probably shouldn't have injected another guesswork into the interview as much as I did. I don't usually do that, but we're dealing with a special situation here, and I just want to get everyone's opinion about every different angle. But anyway, there's just a lot of different ways to look at this thing that all make one realize that the reaction to it, the political reaction, the economic reaction, it's been grossly overplayed. And I just saw in the local news that 40 million people have filed for unemployment during this. That is so many. And it doesn't include the old and the young people that don't work but are dependent on the working. It doesn't include people like my buddy who lost his job and said, fuck it, I'm not going to deal with that terrible website. I'm not going to sit on my thumbs waiting for a check to come through this broken and bloated system. It also doesn't include my other buddy who quit his shitty job in January before this happened, thinking he could just go find another one and then boom, you can't really. And it also wouldn't include another friend I know who ended up with a 30% pay cut. When I really think about it, I know more people who took a huge economic hit that aren't on unemployment than ones who are. And it just seems clear that this is another economic throttling that was manufactured. A gross control overreach that really doesn't seem justified. Whether you think they just jumped on a convenient opportunity or made the whole thing up doesn't really matter when you're looking at the economic situation where the machinations of the economic think tanks that control the levers are going to get away with this kind of thing again. And the blame will fall on an attack from the unpredictable forces of nature and the ignorance and incompetence of a bloated government. A tale as old as time, but I think they get what they want. Anyway, even though I think the corona content is the more important and obviously most pressing right now, I knew with William we could round it out with genetic engineering talk and panspermia, which are fun topics that are kind of virus adjacent and kind of weave us in and out for those who have a little virus fatigue. Even though most of that was in the second hour, either way, it felt like a unique blend and an appropriate show for the times. I hope you agree. If you liked the first hour, please, please, please sign up for the second. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from Plus people lately who have had more time to comb over the archive. I see a lot of new comments on old episodes. And I've got several years of good stuff in there. Why not revisit 
some older shows or some favorite guests, but with that second hour this time. And help relieve a little stress from myself if you have the ability to support the show right now. I hope it's something you value, thehiresideshouts.com. In the second hour of today's show with William Brown, we got into the idea of 12-strand DNA and the spiritual elements of DNA, engineering man to not sense their own masters, maybe right in the same old environment. We talked about raising animal intelligence levels through a similar process, regenerating damaged tissue, and the meridian systems of both land and body. Plus a lot of other good stuff that's hard to come by in other places. And man, there are tens of thousands of free listeners. If I could just convert a few more, it would really mean a lot. But don't put yourself in a tight position. I'll live either way. But that's the show. Check out ResonanceScience.org for more of what they're cooking. Take care of the people around you. Be a calming presence in the chaos rather than an aggravating one. Shore up your health and seek out local, healthier food sources. And keep listening to the Higher Side Chats. I'm getting out of here. Your move, Panspermia directors, cosmic terraformers, and alien evolution engineers. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 